Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Uh, I'm not going to lie. That was a pretty scary moment <laughs> in that fucking set where I was like, you know, I think they might be uncomfortable. And then you're just kind of on stage going, oh, I was so right. Uh, I need to dig myself out of this right now. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it represents what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Veer Dawes. Since 2017, Veer has released four specials on Netflix. That is so many in such a short period of time. But for 2021, he decided he needed to do something completely different, something I've never really seen before. Instead of Another hour, Veer is doing something called 10 on 10, 10 minute specials released on the 10th of every month, filmed in a secret stage deep in the forest of Goa and released days after their tape. As a result, the three specials he's released so far just have like an uncommon urgency. This is partly because of the topics he's chosen to address, freedom of speech, the West, religion, and largely because of the time he's performing them in. Um, in the States, there's a lot of talk about how it's just so hard to be a comedian nowadays with the political correctness and the correct politicalness, but it's sort of like nothing compared to what's currently like in India, where comedians are being arrested, taken to court, and threatened. And I'm just really, 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 really excited for you to hear this conversation, so let's just get into it. We'll be playing the religion installment, which was the first in the series, from January of this year. Veer spoke with me from his home in India while the country was experiencing record-high COVID cases. We included information of how to help and where to donate in the show notes. So, here he is, Veer Das. Many, many people over a long period of time have been telling me the same thing as a comedian. Veer, you will not have a career in India until you start doing relatable material. And that's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to do material that you can relate to and that you recognize in comfort. Are you ready, yeah? Yes. Let's talk about religion. Now, um, <laughs> you know how sad it is that we have to hide in a forest to have this conversation? <laughs> this is how cults get started. <laughs> I'm your Ma Anand Sheila right now. <laughs> 
If we do this three times, I'll either be enlightening you or fucking you. <laughs> I do not believe in ritual or religion because I believe in God. Much like I don't believe in bungee jumping or skydiving because I believe in gravity. <laughs> so what does that make me, people of the forest? It makes me a man with lots of belief but zero faith. And that's okay, is it not? You can believe in someone that you have zero faith in, it's called marriage. <laughs> On the flip side, you can have a lot of faith in something you know isn't true, it's called journalism. <laughs> so I believe in a higher power. I pray to that higher power every night. I just do not believe that it is a religious higher power. In my mind, it is a female higher power. Yes. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I wrote the next joke, you're not gonna like it. <laughs> the reason that I believe that God is a woman is because she never fucking listens to me. This bitch doesn't do one goddamn thing I fucking asked her to do. But I do not believe that there are multiple religions. I believe that there is one God and she was like a single woman. And she was just dating. You know, she got onto like, God, Tinder, Ginder, Gumbel, whatever the hell that is. And she went out on multiple dates with multiple prophets. That's how it happened. She said the exact same thing to every single prophet. Exact same thing, but because they were men, they understood different shit and wrote different shit down, and that became religious. That's all religion is, it's mansplaining. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about, I'm a man. Um, you know, she's just dating, that's it. Every prophet just got one date. Muhammad got one date. Siddhartha, one date. Moses, one date. Jesus got a second date. Yeah, she, she, was, she was walking home with Jesus. She's like, I had a really good time. We should, we should do this again. <laughs> and he was like, okay, I'll come back Sunday. And then she dated all these multiple prophets and eventually married a Hindu guy and started a family. That's how we got 5,000 gods, all right? It's a joint family. No other god has a family. Who, who, who is Mrs. Allah? Do you know, you ever heard of Jesus' uncle, Suresh Christ? No, that's what it is in India. We're just worshiping a joint family, that's it. Which makes no sense because we don't get anything in return. In real life, if you worship a joint family, you can get like aviation contracts, railway contracts, electricity, <laughs> cell phone networks. You get stuff back. Look at how uncomfortable you are right now. Every time I do a joke about religion, people are like, Veer, but why must you joke about religion? There are so many other wholesome and relatable topics that you can use to make other people laugh. My Gujarati uncle, man, fuck your Gujarati uncle. <laughs> fuck your Gujarati uncle. I just spent eight months indoors without a microphone. I just got it back. You think I'm gonna waste it on your Gujarati uncle? The reason I can't do all the jokes in my head is because all of us are collectively worshiping our Gujarati uncle, all right? And every time I do these jokes, people are like, we don't talk about my faith. It ain't your faith. It's faith. We don't talk about my God. Not your God. Doesn't belong to you. If you keep walking around going, hey man, don't talk about my girlfriend, I'll kick your ass. You, don't talk about my girlfriend, I'll kick your ass. But there are billions of guys saying the same thing about the same girl. She's not your girlfriend, buddy. So let's call it out. If you are offended by religious jokes, you are a human being. If you are avenging religious jokes, you are a fundamentalist. 
And does God need fundamentalists? Really, he needs you. You're the first line of defense. <laughs> You're the class monitor that God was counting on this whole time. He needs fundamental. You know what would happen if you went up to Muslim heaven and you're like, I beheaded 60 people because they drew a cartoon of you. Do you know the first thing God would ask? He'd be like, what is a cartoon? <laughs> he doesn't know. Did you forget that God made you and then you made all this other shit? So now like you explain Zoom calls to your dad. <laughs> you would have to explain cartoons to God. It would take forever and you would lose your patience six times. <laughs> like, uh, okay, so uh, cartoon, yes. Um, so the, there's this guy, Walt Disney, and uh, he drew like a mouse. And uh, the entire world, they watched this one mouse. But why? There are so many mouse. <laughs> I make a billion of mouse. It's just, it feels like there is a systemic instability in the amount of attention you are giving a mouse. <laughs> yeah, this is not where I was expecting this conversation to go, honestly. <laughs> I just beheaded a bunch of people, so... I don't know if I'm the guy to talk about instability so much or... I said, no, I know, I know you're not the guy. I'm just saying there are many mouse. All mouse matter. Yes, yes, I know. All mouse matter. It's just all heads don't matter, you know. It's really not that big a deal, all right? He drew a mouse on a piece of paper and it moved like magic for kids. You are giving Hafim to kids? Oh God, it's not Hafim. Look, it's, it's just, you know, there was a magazine, that cartoon, we all got upset. Oh no, I understand, I understand. It's good. What is a magazine? <laughs> God, uh, look, it's a magazine. It's just, uh, you know, a book with picture in it. A uh, picture of a mouse. Not every book has a picture. Look, I have to pray five times today, all right? Five times. Can we speed this up? Oh, you have to pray five times today, huh? Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, there are 1.8 billion of you, 50% of you devout. That's 900 million people praying five times a day. I listen to 4.5 billion prayers a day. But please, tell me more about how busy you are. Right, so cartoons. We have all these organizations under the same evil umbrella, right? You've got Al-Qaeda, you've got the Taliban, you've got lashkar e toiba you've got Al-Shabaab, which, let's be honest, sounds like a place you go to get food after clubbing. <laughs> Doesn't it? Like, hey man, you wanna go to Al-Shabaab? And it's crazy, and they all operate under this one structure. How do you hate cartoons, but then replicate Disney's corporate structure exactly? <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know, if you went up to Jesus, if Christian missionaries went up to Jesus Christ and they were like, hey, we went to all these other countries and we beat the shit out of them and now they believe in you. He'd be like, hey man, I never asked you to do that. I don't speak their language. I don't understand what these white people are saying. Oh, did we forget that Jesus was Middle Eastern, huh? Did you forget that Jesus was brown? You know, if Jesus was walking down the street in New York City, at least five people would be like, get out of my way, Abdul. <laughs> and one of them would be named Abdul. <laughs> and yet Americans put stickers on their car that say, what would Jesus do? Have you seen those stickers? Yeah, yeah you know what Jesus would do in America? He'd get pulled over by the cops every day. <laughs> and they justify their own actions. Jesus would want you to vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> That's what Jesus would do. You know what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what Jesus would do if he met Donald Trump? He'd turn him into bread. <laughs> Don't you ever watch Donald Trump and just get hungry? <laughs> He's like, the election was stolen, we have to stop the steal. And you're like, yeah, I'm just gonna make a sandwich, it's fine. <laughs> Jesus would want you to have an AK-47. 
you know what Jesus would do if he saw an AK-47? He'd turn it into bread. Because that's largely what Jesus did. He just like walked on water and turned shit into food. Water into wine, rocks into bread. He's just like a really buoyant alchemist who sometimes dabbled in catering. It's not that impressive turning water into wine or rocks into bread. I know kids in China, you give them one piece of metal, they'll give you an iPhone in 20 minutes. And I'm not comparing Jesus to an iPhone because an iPhone has been resurrected way more times and way more successfully than Jesus Christ. Hindu people, do you know, you went up to Hindu gods and you were like, we broke down a comedy club because they did jokes about you. Do you know what they'd ask? They'd be like, what's a comedy club? They don't know. Now you'd have to explain. You'd have to be like, yeah, it's um, this place where we, we all get together and laugh. Oh, so like temple. No, 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 we, we don't laugh in temple. Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot. We laugh at you in temple. You're also desperate. My exam! You're not gonna pass. You think Hindu gods are impressed with you? Do you? Honestly? I think they are, just by what you drink. I think Hindu gods are looking down at a cow like they drank what? They drank the piss, that's the wrong hole? Were they lost? Context, for those of you that are watching from outside the country, sometimes some Hindus will drink the piss of a cow because they believe that it has medicinal properties. Shall we be honest with you? I tried it. Yeah. Just to write this joke, I tried it. And it didn't taste that bad. I just had like logistical questions. Are there Mutra experts? <laughs> there are wine experts, aren't they? You give them a glass of wine, random wine, and they're like, it's got a fine nose. And it's from the Bordeaux region. There's a hint of lavender and cinnamon. Are there guys in India, you just hand them a random glass of piss? They're like, the cow was happy. <laughs> He was from Noida. I don't know. <laughs> but some people will drink Gamutra, the piss of a cow, because they believe it cures cancer. And I said, you do you. Well done. And by the way, <laughs> by the way, in your face, Jesus, you turn water into wine, we turn piss into chemotherapy. All right, in your face. And these jokes upset people because we worship the cow in India, right? In India, we will lynch a Muslim family for eating beef and then we'll travel abroad where there's a McDonald's on every single corner. <laughs> eating Indian cows. Do you know that India is the third largest exporter of beef in the world? Do you know if you went to the White House, they would serve you your God back to you? <laughs> I'm sorry. It is just so fucking hypocritical that an entire saffron religion is trumped by the aspiration of a green card. And let's sit in this silence for a second. Let's, if your faith is so rattled by a joke, is it really that strong? You believe in your God? You worship your God? Leave my jokes alone. That's it. Your God can take it. You think your God can't take it? I promise you, He can. Your God made the moon, the sun, the earth, the wind and the fire. You think He doesn't have a sense of humor? He made you. <laughs> so I'm here with Veer Das. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me from halfway across the world. Yes.
so uh, so I want the listeners to sort of have a sense of how notable, you know, what you're doing with Ten for Ten is in the context of your career. Um, so uh, and uh, so I want to start by I was watching this documentary made a few years ago about the the young history of English speaking stand up in India, and you know it opened by setting you know, a couple pivotal moments in the early 21st century. And first, they're like YouTube started, which, you know, allowed people access to see what was happening around the world and also gave people platform. And the other thing they say um, is that you came back to India. And I know you don't like taking credit. I won't make you take credit for anything. But um, I feel like it'd be useful if you can sort of share both your personal story as it relates to starting stand-up in the States and sort of how it corresponds with the cultivation of English-speaking stand-up in India? Well, I think that depends on whether I should tell the truth or not. Or maybe I'll, I'll tell you the truth and then I'll tell you the lie. How about that? All right. Uh, so the lie is that, yes, you know, after doing drama school and uh, I was just a big stand-up fan and, you know, just years of watching like Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, George Carlin. At the end of drama school, I wrote like a 90-minute show and it was called Brown Men Can't Hump. Uh, just because, you know, that's a new comic, what he calls his new show, of course, mm-hmm. uh, which was <laughs> just terrible stuff. And then I was like open micing in in Chicago and then went back to start a scene in India. The truth is my visa expired. That's basically what happened. Uh, I had one year after college during which I was unemployable. And then I just kind of went home and I figured, hey, I, I've done three open mics. No, actually <laughs> about 10 open mics and I did like a 90 minute show. This means I know how to do this, right? Uh, so clearly someone in India should put me in like a big theater and, and we should sell some tickets. And that ridiculous notion made someone put me in the theater and then yeah. we sold 400 tickets. And yeah, th- that's basically how it happened. And what, what was interesting was you know, there was some stand-up and of course the Hindi stand-up scene is gigantic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and predates me by about a thousand years. But, sure. um, you know, there was just nobody young doing English stand-up at the time. So there was, wasn't anyone that, you know, college kids could watch. Um, and someone who was kind of edgy or talking about sex or talking about just young people stuff. It was this very posh sort of Jeeves and Booster mm. crowd. Um, and so that kind of took, you know, with, with younger audiences. Um, the other thing that I think might be useful, and I, I don't mean this to be gauche, but I do think it'll be helpful. Um, can you quantify your level of fame in India before the pandemic? <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a tough one. Like I, uh, it, you know, it, it goes through ebbs and flows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess, okay, 14 movies. Um, about five of them were good, good, you know, sure. and, and the rest were, were movies that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and three Netflix specials. Um, so, you know, whatever that is, I don't know who the equivalent of that would be in well, the U S like how many seats, how many people would you play for at your biggest venue on an Indian tour? If, if I'm doing new Delhi, then maybe like 10, 12,000 in a stadium. And then the year before that, I just done a world tour, which was 29 countries, mm-hmm. you know, but, yeah. but again, like I said, there's a lot of Indians everywhere in the world. So I don't sure. want that to seem arrogant. It's just, I go where the Indians are, you know, look, I try to ask these questions in a way that I knew you would not want to seem arrogant, but I did feel like it was useful for context. So I appreciate you indulging me. Um, okay. 
So your third Netflix special for India came out like days before the first case of COVID was reported in India. So at that moment, before sort of you knew what was about to happen, how were you feeling about your stand-up? What were you planning? What were you thinking the direction you were going in was going to be? I'll be honest, I didn't know. You know, the the thing is, uh, I, I was just... You know, the list of people who have three Netflix specials, if I was in the room with any of those people, I would fanboy my ass mm. off. You know, I'd ask for autographs if I was in the room with any of those people. So the fact that I'd even gotten three, the, the pressure was on in that I really had to make one different from the other, right? Because the last thing you want is same comedian, bigger suit, bigger venue, but similar mm. special. That's not something you want. So, you know, with, with Vidas for India... You know, the first special cut between two cities and it was kind of an introductory special. And the second one was a proper American stand-up special. But the third one, we just kind of took away all the swag, right? We, I sat on a stoop. There was no stage. It, it was about Indian culture. There was a certain mm-hmm. humility to it. So I, I kind of went out of that just going, I don't know what else I have to say. Like my big goal was... I'll do three and I'm going to work really hard to make sure that if you put them up against each other, they're not similar to each other Mm. in any way, shape or form. So the last thing I wanted when that special came out, uh, you know, I was just in the mode of, okay, I got away with it. All three were well received. Now let me not do a special or not do stand up for a while. Let me act for a while. Let me do something else for a while. So then the pandemic happened and, you know, last August, you put out a special on your website that eventually ended up on Netflix called Outside In. And, you know, tonally, I would describe it as like, it, it's honest, but there's like a hopefulness to it. And then sort of mm-hmm. fast forward to December, you know, <laughs> yeah. you put up a video on your Instagram with a very different tone. I'll call it sort of defiant. And, you know, you're teasing the 10 for 10 project and you say something and I, I want you to tell me what you're thinking, which was, you know, I'm done playing by the rules because I wasn't part of setting these rules and my career has had to conform to those rules for too long. So next year, I'm going to effectively try to end my career. Can you, um, what does that mean? But also like these, that feeling doesn't happen overnight. Walk me through getting to that and and what you're trying to say. I think, you know, uh, at a personal level, you know, when you achieve and God's been kind, a, re- a decent amount of success, it also does become a machine, right? Yeah. And, and the machine gathers more people and it gathers more infrastructure, et cetera. And you're, you're then performing just to feed that machine at some level. Um, and so I just hadn't stopped for a really mm-hmm. long time. For a decade, I hadn't stopped. And uh, the pandemic kind of gave me pause to be like, okay, you know, really, 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 God's been good. I think the rent is paid for long enough. You know, I think my employees will be happy for long enough. Let's mess with this because what did I last really enjoy? Mm -hmm. And chances are I made very little money doing it. And chances are very few other people were involved. You know, the things that I really, really enjoyed, but also chances are those are the things that succeeded the most, you know, like, and, and outside in was a, uh, a clear example of that as well, where, you know, I had like a, an SLR camera, like a DSLR and pointed it at myself and rolled a special, not thinking anyone would watch that, raised a bunch of money and put it on Netflix. And I kind of went, you know, when I, when I DIY and I have like 150% conviction and I don't think about the machine, it tends to work out. So how about if I just did this for a year, what would happen? And everybody was like, you'd end your career. And I'm like, well, okay, let's, let's end it then. Um, 
And if it really does end, I'll try and restart it in a year's time. But I'm just done trying to jump through these hoops anymore. Yeah. So and then so why this idea to capture that feeling of you being done? Like why? How did that then become? Oh, I want to do ten on ten. Um, it didn't. Like I, I knew I wanted to call it ten on ten, but I didn't know what it was going to be. I was like, let me do ten minutes on the tenth of every month. Look, my psychology is very simple. All right. Sure. Um, I have to announce it first because if I don't announce it, I won't do it. Mm-hmm. That's my thing. So. I'll always announce the show before I've written a word of the show. I'll book the theater or the arena before I've written a word mm-hmm. of the show. Um, but more than that, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you watch a lot of stand up as well. I think there's fatigue. Yeah. You know, there's so many specials and so many formats. And I was just thinking, you know, I remember iconic bits of stand up. You know, I remember George Carlin and the things you can't see on television. I remember Eddie Murphy's ice cream. You know, John Mulaney's horse in the hospital, which I think is the best Trump routine, you know, because it's it's more timeless than anything else. And I was just like, can I stop being burdened by trying to craft these specials? Can I create 10 iconic bits of stand-up comedy that I'm remembered by? And then I kind of said, well, then they have to be about the world, you know, and, and they have to be audacious at some level. And, and I have to seem like I'm... I'm putting myself out there in a real way. And I think that's what makes them memorable because that's why all these other things were memorable as well. Yeah. So how did you land on religion as the center for the first one? Um, it was a bunch of things. You know, I, I think I had a bit from from a Netflix special called Losing It, which was about me losing my religion. And uh, for some reason, a year and a half after the special, that had gone viral. You know, mm. and just that bit. It was up online. And so I was getting a lot of hate for that. Um, I had just gone to court because I had a Netflix series called Hasmuk where, um, you know, I'd done some jokes. Oh, I played a fictitious comedian who did bad jokes about religion. And so I got taken to court and I had to fight like a court case in front of the high court to defend jokes. And thankfully, the the you know, the case went my way. And then the government started sort of a a rhetoric of these comedians are disrespectful and disrespecting our majority religion. And then a comedian went to jail, you know, a younger comedian went to jail called Munawar who, um, you know, went to jail for jokes he didn't do that evening, you know, but he had done previously on YouTube and spent a month in jail. And I just kind of had it because, you know, that that was um, what was on everybody's mind. But also, I love religious material. You know, genuinely, Mm. I'm fascinated by it. I've done it in two specials. I'm fascinated with mythologies and and stories and and how they affect human behavior. So, yeah, I I guess I was just angry, you know, but people were too. And it kind of came out in that. You mentioned how uh, Munawar Faruqi was Mm -hmm. just arrested right before you did this, I believe, right? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Were Were you had any feelings? Did it make you more... Uh, emboldened to do it i mean obviously it inspired you but did it did it were you feeling about a way of like oh no this i could be next if i'm doing this if i'm gonna put this out man i'm i'm pretty sure you know my day will come you know and, and i don't say that to sound heroic in any way shape or form because i am afraid like every artist in my country is afraid you know so but i'm pretty sure there will come a day when i will say the wrong thing from from you know the, the system's perspective or whatever with Munawar, I, I think it was a, 
you know, yes, he was a big part of it, but also a part of it was, I really like doing this, mm. you know, and I really like talking about these things and not just your God, but my God too. I like parroting my own relationship with God. And if I don't step up now, and if I don't speak up now, um, I'll lose the ability to do this because I plan to do this in the future. Mm. So I have to get ahead of it. Um, and I see that with zero judgment on anybody who wants to, you know, just keep their head down and do other material and, and self-preserve because the second part of my thinking was, you know, of all the comics in India, I've been very fortunate, if not the most fortunate English comic in India. And I come from a place of privilege far ahead of hmm. most English comics. So I'm like, man, if I can't fight this, what shot does the kid in jail have? Yeah. You know? Um, or what shot does the next kid who does it in an open mic have? So I kind of need to step up on this. So um, what is your process when you're were undertaking a, a bit like this? I mean, like, I, I know it seems like when you do a full special, you have an idea and then you sort of fill it up. When you're doing 10 minutes, you know, how do you write? How do you sort of build material, especially right now? Well, I mean, right now it's tough, right? Because you don't yeah. get to work it. You don't get to... But, it kind of reminds me of when I started doing stand-up first in India because there were no rooms. There were no, you know, so you just, I would literally write like 90 new minutes and go up in front of 500 people with 90 new minutes. And you were just screaming without dynamics, right? Just mm -hmm. hoping that stuff hit. But with this, I, I kind of knew broadly what I wanted to say, which was, yes, that religious material is okay. Um, I kind of broadly knew that I had to be democratic in, at least in terms of major religions. Hmm. Um, I broadly knew that, uh, you know, there's a huge Hindu-Muslim thing where Hindus are like, why don't you make fun of Muslims and see what happens? Um, and Muslims are like, why are you always making fun of us? Why is the Muslim joke the easiest joke in the world? Why aren't people making fun of other religions? And yes, there's a sentiment of Christians just getting let, let off the hook a lot. You know, yeah. <laughs> at least in a modern context, because so many comedians have done jokes about yeah. Jesus Christ and, and you know, Mary and Joseph, etc. So I kind of knew, okay, I have to take all three on, um, one after the other, you know, in case they're editing snippets of this clip and putting them up online, mm. which a lot of sort of uh, government cells do. Uh, and genuinely, I, I kind of wanted to experiment it because the big accusation against any comedian is that they're being selective. So there's a little bit of, all right, well, if I make fun of everyone, can you really handle it? Let's see. Let's find out, right? Uh, you, let's call that bluff. You, you mentioned government cells. So are you saying like people that are um, working in the government will essentially take things out of context to be like, look at these jokes these people are saying. This is anti yeah. this. Anti yeah. And, and then there are, you know, every wing of government, every party of government, proposition and opposition, have, you know, IT cells, what we call IT cells, which are thousands and thousands of people who retweet, you know, amplify their messaging. Um, and sometimes when they don't like something, they amplify that pretty well, <laughs> you know. Um, so I want to go through parts of the joke and you can tell me just sort of more what you're thinking or um, how it developed. Um, so you sort of start and you say you don't believe in you don't believe in ritual or religion because you believe in God, much like you don't mm -hmm. bungee jump or skydive because you believe in gravity. Can you talk about that? And, you know, just in general, what is your arc in terms of religion? Where you grew up religious, where there's a certain breaking point? Like, how did you get to this point of view on it? 
I, I think it's just, you know, because I, I grew up in India and then my parents were in Africa and I was in boarding school back in India. So traveling back and forth between, you know, two countries that are religiously very, very different from each other. You know, uh, Islam in Africa is different from Islam in India. You know, uh, Christianity in Africa is different from Christianity in India as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, just being in college in the U.S. and, you know, just kind of having moved around a lot. And, you know, uh, experienced a lot of people from different religions, been in love with a lot of people from different religions. I think that's a big part of it. You know, my girlfriend in college was a conservative Christian, you know, and and just a a really church going conservative Christian. And and there was beauty in that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I think I just found that really they're all the same, Yeah. you know with different stuff that they get upset about but the stuff that they like is all the same largely you know <laughs> and uh, and that i deeply believe in god i yeah. do you know i pray every night and i don't ask as much as i thank but i do pray um i just don't have to go to temple or church or to a mosque to do it and yeah. I, that might come from my parents as well because they're very you know uh you know, God wants you not to be an a-hole. And that's it. If you can, if you, if you have that down, God's good, we're good, everybody's good. You know, I think that's the messaging in my house yeah. growing up. That makes sense. Um, so then you have the, the sort of chunk about um, you believe God is a woman and then sort of how that then played out to sort of set the religions. Can you talk about developing that part and just what the thinking was? I, I like... Um, God being a woman, because, you know, for Hindus, that's not a very audacious thing to say. Because, you know, we have so many female goddesses. So, you know, uh, Hinduism actually as a religion is very open to the idea of God Mm. being a woman. Um, More so than others, I would say. Um, It's slightly provocative for the other religions, and and I like it for that. And uh, I wanted a bit that seemed like it was pandering, and then wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know? Because I think we all know the guy who's like, I believe that God is a woman. And, and I, I, I said, you know, j- just that guy. We all know that guy. And sometimes he's genuine. And sometimes he's trying to get a girl's phone number. You know, like, mm-hmm. like th- there's both versions yeah. of that guy. <laughs> so I really <laughs> like the idea of opening with a statement that kind of set me up to be that guy. And then provoking. Yeah. Uh, but also, if, if you say God is a woman, you have to be able to back it up with logic. Right. Because I think that's the realm in which women operate as well, is they're far more logical than men and pragmatic than men. We'll be right back. More Verdas. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, 
for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because like who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back with Veerdaz. So you say every time I joke about religion, people will say, why must you joke about that? You know, then they talk about why don't you talk about relatable topics? Is that a thing that is constantly, is that like a popular thing that happens? Do people reach out to you a lot? Like, what do you, how do you respond to them? I I bring it up partly because like, I feel like jokes about religion were bigger in a different time here. And now we just sort of like, so is it, is it a constant back and forth where people like, just don't talk about that. Talk about all these other things. Yeah, I, I think it's a big thing of uh, people just going, there's so many other things you can talk about. Why religion? You know, and, and not even from a perspective of it's so done because, yeah. you know, for us, it's not done, you know, and, and for us, we're a newer nascent stand-up scene. And also, let's be clear, the, the connotations of what it means to be religious now, as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, 20 years ago when, you know, comedians in, in the 90s or whatever were doing jokes about, you know, uh, like Robin Williams has a great routine about Mary and Joseph, etc. Yeah. But he did it in a time where there wasn't Christian social media and right-wing social mm-hmm. media. And it wasn't so politically inflamed. Um, and religion didn't lead, lead to voting. You know, it, it was just a different time. I, I feel like a more innocent time for religion. So the context of doing religious jokes now is very different. You know, the atmosphere. It's interesting because you connect it to... You know, the next part is that if you're avenging religious jokes, you're a fundamentalist. Suppose you can you could be bothered by them. You're allowed to have bothered, but the yeah. idea that you feel like you must do something about it. Well, well, yeah, I mean, but the thing is, you know, how much stuff are you bothered about in a week, and how much can you actually do stuff about? You know, that that's the one thing. Like, you know, you were bothered about your president, or you were bothered about, you know the streets of New York, or you were bothered about traffic, or you were bothered about potholes or whatever. You can't do that. But taking a guy down on social media, that's pretty easy. You know, that's uh, so sometimes I feel like people are taking all of their other bothers and channeling them into the one thing that they actually can control and see an outcome in. So I'm happy for people to be bothered. But if you're showing up and busting up comedy clubs or trying to take me to court or whatever, then, you know, you're, you're avenging. 
yeah. as such. So the the next section is the what you're talking about, where you go through each of the religions. How did you, so? I'll go through each one. How did you sort of land on what you wanted to say about Islam, or what you found funny about it, or what you found? How did you find the angle that you felt was new? I wanted a new take on that. Like I, I consciously went after a new take on that because the, you know, the joke. Oh, Muslims don't like cartoons. That's a big thing. That's done in like a bunch of comedy specials, right? Yeah. And at some point, I was like. Yeah, but would he know what a cartoon is? You know, and forget whether you like them or not. Having to explain the concept of what a cartoon is, uh, I thought was nicer. You know, it's it's a yeah. it's a more observational take on a hateful situation. Um, sometimes, you know, whether it's good or not uh, is for the audience to decide. But it definitely is difficult to mm. find that take. To take an easy, relatable, you know, you, you could just leave it at oh, you don't like cartoons, and and certainly we've all done that at some point. But to really go in there and find something mm-hmm. new out of that, I like that challenge, you know. With the Christianity section, there's sort of two parts. There's the one where but Jesus turns things into bread or wine, and there's yeah. the part about Jesus as a brown person and what that how would you be treated uh, as in America, uh, treated in America. Um, can you talk about that part? Yeah, uh, I mean, look. The, I, I think people forget that Jesus looks like me, you know, <laughs> and, and and I say that very specifically, which is not to say that I look like Jesus, but yeah. Jesus looks like me, sure. you know, uh, in that he's just a brown man with a beard. Um, and you don't see that imagery a lot out there. So you kind of say that because that's nice. And then the, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, again, the old comedian adage is, oh, Jesus uh, would you like some water? I'm sorry, wine. Or he turns yeah. stuff into bread. It's not a great skill, you know, like, like that's what I, I thought about it and what I liked about it, which is, yeah, we keep talking about the fact that he turned water into wine and, and rocks into bread, but it's not very impressive. Like I've seen David Blaine do better stuff than Jesus, you know, like more impressive stuff than Jesus. And, yes. and you know. Yes, yeah. yeah, miracles go. Yeah. You, th- you think it, we'd expect more. You know, you could do slightly better. Like today, if you put him on TV, I don't know if a lot of people are watching that show. You know, if the end of the episode is bread. That's all I'm saying. Um, it is a part that seems, you know, you're writing, are you, you know, considering you're doing it for 60 people in India, in in the in the forest, are you writing this being like, well, knowing that this is going to be watched around the world, knowing there's an American audience that's going to be watching this, like how conscious of it, when you think of material... How much are you thinking, oh, these these 60 people? How much are you thinking, like, oh, the however many thousands of people that can watch it later? I'm not thinking about the thousands of people. And, and the one sort of, the one thing I do know is that even Americans appreciate um, someone who's specific. Mm. You know, the last thing you want is, and I learned that with the last Netflix special, which is to say, yes, let me try and explain some stuff to the Western world. But there's some stuff that's just for us. You know, and there's some nuance that is just for us and an international audience will be okay with that. You know, um, sometimes when I watch like a, a John Leguizamo special or a George Lopez special, I know that there's stuff in there that is not for me. It's just for his audience. And it's not only fascinating to try and discover what the joke was, but it's good to be left out yeah, uh, yeah. of some stuff. I don't have to be included in everything. There, There is something nice. You, when you hear people talk 
say things you've never heard before, but you understand the type of thing they're saying, this sort of like mm-hmm. inside language. There's just something really compelling. Of like, I don't know this thing, but I do like the pattern of how they're laughing at it. Like they're laughing and, in a way where they know it's just for them. I know. And, and, and also there's a, you know, on the flip side, when you do explain on the few chances that, that you make it relatable, that also is a nice journey to go, okay, this guy is our version of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Because now I know that about your culture, you know, and, and, and now maybe I can navigate it a little bit easier than I could before this show. Yeah, there is something. Um, it makes me think of, you know, Mike Probiglia's special, thank God for jokes. Yeah and, he, yeah. and he has that joke about, an inside joke he has with his wife about calling Massachusetts, Massachusetts, and essentially yeah. does it in a way where he sets it up so that when he brings it up later, it's now a joke for the entire audience. Yeah. And I think there's something really nice when you could take inside moments and make it feel like a way of bringing an audience together. I think so, you know, and also, I mean, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty and all of that stuff, but I, I think we're giving me a, a lot of credit for, for pre-thinking these things. I, I think you also have to keep in mind that you know, uh, I'm 13 years in or 14 years in. And when you compare that to the average American comic, it's not a lot of time. Yeah. You know, uh, if they say, you know, Chappelle, Chappelle now, you know, uh, 25, 30 years in. So I think the kind of comedian I am also changes every week. You know, I, I don't know what it is yet or who I am yet. I mean, I've interviewed enough comedians of different times and there's different amount of intentionality that will ever happen, right? It's possible I'll talk, if I talk to you in 10 years, you'll mm-hmm. still be like, I think I thought this, but ultimately I'm just going on instinct. Yeah. Or, oh, I knew, I, you know, I had this intention, I had this goal, I wanted to jo- do a joke that sort of did this. You know, it's partly, yeah. you know, as we go through it, it is, you know, you wrote it because you thought it was funny, but now you're like, why did I think it's funny? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> like with the Hindu section, it's like mm-hmm. you you talk about um, how they the, you start first with how they break up comedy clubs, and then mm-hmm. you you um, have them explain what a comedy club is to the gods, and they're like, oh, so like a temple, like so. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, do you feel like there is something reli- not religious, but something spiritual or something like a temple to comedy shows generally? I mean, uh, not to. You know, aggrandize, is that the right word? It is. Not to build ourselves up too much or anything like but that. But please but do it. I do think... <laughs> I, this is, this I, is the I think time laughter is... is <laughs> I think laughter is pretty spiritual. Yeah. You know, like 20, 60 people being, um, you know, just in a room together and laughing. I think that's a pretty spiritual experience. I've also seen, you know, my ex-girlfriend, I used to go to church with her sometimes. And, and I've seen some... You know, some uh, some pastors do a fair amount of stand-up up there as well. You know, <laughs> they're trying to make their, their congregation laugh. Um, and look, some of it is just to provoke because, yeah, you, 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 uh, you know, you tore down my place of worship, mm. which is the club. Um, at some level, I'm going to take on yours as well. So the angle you pick is a focusing on the cow piss section. Um, yes. And you said you tried it for the joke. Can you... Tell me the story of, one, is that true? And two, why? What is the instinct to be like, if I'm going to tell a joke about it, I have to try, you know, tell, talk yeah, about did. that. I did. So, and, and I mean, the truth of the joke is I had like, you know, some eight or nine years before and somebody was like, you have to taste this. And, and I did. And, and it, it's it's a nondescript sort of a taste, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's, 
it's easy to to say oh we drink the the piss of a cow etc 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 and have that be a a down or mm. a diss you know um but i i wanted to find an angle where i'm like not only have i tried it um but you do you and here's something positive i can say about it because that's slightly unexpected coming from yeah. a comic you'd expect a comic to to kind of look down on that yeah cuz it's so it'd be so easy to be like you guys are weird i mean that's not that interesting yeah. of a joke to just be like oh that sounds yeah. weird it is weird it's more interesting to be like oh like how far do people take it um yeah. you know towards the end you say you know you talk about indians here and then sort of indians abroad and mcdonald's and then you you say the line it's so fucking hypocritical that an entire saffron religion is trumped by the aspirations for a green card and the audience is silent like truly silent it feels yeah. like if you didn't talk they would have not talked for <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i'm not gonna lie that was a pretty scary moment <laughs> in that fucking set where i was like you know i think they might be uncomfortable and then you're just kind of on stage going oh i was so right uh, i need to dig myself out of this right now um so i, I kind of acknowledge the silence as you can see uh, in, in the video as well yeah what do you think that was like as a, what were their i mean you can only see their eyes so what were their eyes telling you it's true though you know because i I've, i've lived uh in the us and i've lived abroad as well and sometimes all this bravado that we show at home uh we lose all of that and just kind of keep our head down and prosper when we go abroad we're just like mm-hmm. pay the rent don't make a scene etc etc um so that's definitely something i wanted to call out because you only have this loud volume at home <laughs> yeah. you know where you know you can get away with it like if i was able to to dial 911 and the police would actually show up in 5 minutes uh in this forest in goa you might have a different you know uh, thought about threatening me or a comic in general like if you if you want to bust up a comedy club someone would dial 911 and the cops would show up in most countries in the world whatever their version of 911 is but you're doing it here because you know yeah. the cops aren't coming yeah it is you know you don't see a moment like that that often like it is even rewatching you're just like as a just was like wow they are processing this information <laughs> Like, you know but the, the thing is you you also have to keep in mind why they're processing it right which is uh, and and I want to preface this by saying Indians have a wonderful sense of humor because we mm-hmm. do right but there are certain things which is which we're all thinking you know uh, about our own freedoms and our own liberties and our own um you know speech and how much we're allowed to say So suddenly when somebody's saying something that like that you're also sometimes uncomfortable because it's just weird to see somebody speak out loud like that yeah. whether you agree or not you, you, it's just not protocol sometimes it doesn't compute to see somebody do that you know But I think the thing that's interesting as we talk about all this is that you know that still happens here and stand up has existed even like in the most un- clear understanding of a stand up of what we think of a stand up has existed like since like the 1940s here so like st- still audiences are still getting used to the idea of a stand up yeah. comedy it's been 80 years here it's been less than 20 years there do you yeah. feel like part of it is like they're still learning what it means to be a stand up audience member i uh, you know i actually look at it as as a plus you know uh, and perhaps i don't say this enough publicly in in I've been checking myself because I should which is 
you know, with every new person that gets upset about something a comedian says, a way to look at that is also that that's a new person that has come into stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. that is now watching into stand up comedy uh, and and doesn't know the protocol so that means that the audience is really growing you yeah. know when when you hit people who have never seen a stand up comedian before and aren't jaded about it don't know what the scene is don't know how this goes um that's a plus for the stand up comedy scene in your country and yes they'll be upset the first time but they won't the second time yeah i think that's a really good point i think a lot of comedians have a hard time realizing which is when people are angry about a joke in any way, like they're angry because it offends this reason, they're angry because of how they say it, whatever it is, that is a person who cares about what you're doing. Like, yeah. <laughs> now they don't care yeah. in the way that you'd like, but it's better than what was the case for the first 60 years of comedy, which is no one cared what anyone was doing. Like the whole thing was like comedians can't get respect. It's like now they have the respect. What are you going to do with it? Because people are listening. Yeah, and, and also that means that if allegedly the, the the purpose of your art is to touch a nerve or to, or to form a connection, you formed one, albeit a shitty connection, but yeah. <laughs> but, but you formed one, right? And, and that means maybe you pick the right subject. Like uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing the new ten on ten, and I'll probably shoot it in like a week or two if I can, and. And now I think we're going into a lockdown, so maybe I'll have to do it online and mm. in the Zoom format or whatever. But uh, you know, it was gonna be about like cancel culture, right? And mm. and that was something that I was gonna talk about because that feels relevant and timely. And it's now about grief, mm. you know, just literally global grief. Um, you know, India is going through, as you know, just a terrible surge in in cases and it's becoming impossible to ignore the fact that a lot of us are losing people we love you know so there's this collective mass grief uh, america has lost half a million people or more than half a million people that's gigantic you know that's yeah. a huge number of people and i i've seen comedy routines that have talked about the virus or about the management of the virus um but i haven't seen something that's talked about how strange this grieving process is as compared to any other grieving process in history this is different um so, so i think it might be about that you know that's yeah. what I've, i found myself writing about two days ago and i was like no you know there'll be time for cancel culture i'll probably get canceled after this video anyway uh so i'll write about it then but this one needs to be about grief i don't think you'll get canceled for saying we're in a <laughs> period of mass grief i don't know who who is against Who's against that? No, I think it is a thing that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this as it relates to, like, at least in the States, about what comedy was like after 9-11. And mm-hmm. and the benefit or how, from what I know, and there were not a lot of specials that came out in 2001, 2002. Like, th- there is, like, a kind of a yeah. gap. But the sense you get is, from the comedians I've talked to, is, like, well, at least it was over. So you talk yeah. about kind of how you're feeling today and, you know, there's just sort of that. The the feeling of it not being over, not knowing when it's over, not know, is, I think it's, you don't have, it's hard to get any distance. Yeah, I, I think so. But also it's, again, looking for the new, like, you know, like, like to give you a, and I'm, I'm actually not using this premise in the final bit, but um, when I was writing about grief today and I was like, if allegedly there is this afterlife, and you know you 
you die and you go to this great place. You know, for years and years and years, you, you've showed up and you're like, you think God is going to greet you or someone from your family is going to greet you. But like, can you imagine heading there and mm-hmm. you know half the people on the bus? <laughs> you know, because you know so many people that went with you. You know, so you're just heading up there with, oh man, you're here as well? Like what happened? And, and you know, it's like you're all going to a concert together or like a music music festival together. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how someone who's just lost somebody is going to take that, you know. So I'm, I'm trying to find the ins and outs or something like that. But it, it is different to any grieving process before yeah. in that sense. The next video, the second 10 to, for 10 was about freedom of speech and um, I want to talk about it a little bit, but one thing that I noticed from what one thing that I heard this weekend is that um, the government is has deleted certain posts yes. that are yeah. about it. And I've seen your accounts. You're pretty active of trying to like circulate information. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what does it feel like right now? What do you feel like your your responsibility is? What are you trying to do? How are you trying to be of use? I, you know, for me, it's. It's threefold, right? So number one, I have to fundraise. That's really, really important. And, and you have to think of a social media footprint as uh, A, your privilege means that you must contribute. And once you're done with that, that doesn't mean you're done. You know, if, if you can't mobilize millions of followers into raising money for good causes, the hell are they there for? I will charge a brand lots of money to tweet something to mm-hmm. my my followers. So why the hell wouldn't I tweet and get money in reverse? You know, it, it just seems logical for celebrities or, or people with large influences to do that. That's one. Two, yeah, trying to spread information about, you know, what's happened in social media in the last few weeks is is kind of a beautiful thing in India where we need beds, somebody finds a bed. We need a hospital, somebody finds oxygen, somebody does that because we're all retweeting and sharing and and I found myself thinking yesterday, I was like, oh, fuck, I believe in Twitter again. Really? Like, I, I was so happy hating this platform, <laughs> you know, and now it's doing good things again. Oh, crap. I have to realign how I feel. So doing that, but also, yeah, not letting go of of asking questions, you know, and, and I don't say that in any self-important way mm-hmm. because I'm a small fish and many people are asking questions. But, you know, I, I know... You know, I, I have a friend who's been to the crematorium three times this week, literally three times, you know, and stood outside and watched somebody else cremate three people that he knew. He's not going to ask any questions, mm-hmm. you know, in this moment in time. He's broken. Um, do I owe it to him to ask some questions that I know he wants the answers to? Absolutely. You know, so that's there too. Yeah. In the the freedom of speech episode, you you get at, you know, there's different versions of this conversation that have happened throughout comedy in in different ways. And there was the the version that happened in the 1960s where Lenny Bruce was getting arrested for doing jokes about Christianity. And then there's the version now where there's the internet and how people respond. And the thing that when I observe your your act and how you talk about it, it's like everything for you guys is happening at once. You're having sort of both the 
government relationship persecuting and also people on the internet like being complaining about i think i saw that you went to court for making jokes about lawyers or something yeah yeah it's true. i mean if irony had a you know had a face that that situation was it i did jokes about lawyers and then lawyers took me to court which so, is insane ex- can at best as possible can you describe what it's like how does it feel how bad you know how bad would you say it is like how risky does it feel like for comedians just to do their jobs um for me significantly less than uh younger comedians mm. for me significantly less than hindi comedians for me significantly less than muslim or christian comedians you know so that's something definitely that that you have to account for um you know i i can i can cover legal fees Yeah. And, you know, in India, we we all comedians have this lovely silent culture of when we know a guy's in legal trouble. I will say that about Indian comics, we never mention it in public. You know, we never tweet about it. We never do anything, but we quietly send each other money. Mm. You know, just because we know that for a while that guy's not going to be able to do any shows because he won't get his permissions and he's going to need lawyer money, etc. So there's a beautiful thing that happens underground in in the Indian comedy scene where we do. come through that's great you know but it it's sort of a hey man i'm going to send you this cash just don't tell anyone because otherwise i'm going to need this cash to <laughs> you know to spend on my own lawyers so there's a little bit of that um and i think it's also a generational thing you know which is we're a very young and a very old country mm-hmm. at the same time You know, I, I was reading somewhere. I think we're the largest working population under thirty on the planet right now. You know, and but we're being ruled by just a, a very old generation. I'm somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, but younger people are really fighting for this voice. So what you're seeing in in the freedom of speech battle is that battle too. It's the generational battle. Yeah. One thing that um, I noticed that I think is really an interesting example. Of this is people will periodically say that you should host a show like John Oliver's show, and then you'll <laughs> respond, and you'll like very often people suggest this in India. And then you, the one one response you said was John Oliver's on HBO, a major cable network. Name one major network here that would let me do the political comedy I would want to do without seriously jeopardizing themselves and their staff. Yeah. That that I think that is like. We have so many political comedy shows here. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. It seems like a different world, doesn't it? And yet that world is watching your political comedy shows. Uh and and also watches uh you know political comedy shows in general. You know, so it's uh I I I don't know how to describe it. Like I can watch John Oliver on my television right now. Mhm. Like I have HBO. I can watch uh Last Week Tonight. and i can watch an episode where he talks about indian politics uh on my television in india no problem maybe they've censored one or two things i doubt they even would uh but i mean i could do it we'd last one episode <laughs> and then so i'd much rather book a forest and uh yeah. and do it that way who so with the so the government would be like you have to you can't air this show like it would be sort of a top down thing or pressure I don't know. I I just know that you know uh, every platform has also been very very kind to me. You know Netflix has been super kind to me. Amazon has been super kind to me. And platforms are people at the yeah. end of the day. You know, yeah. uh, they're not not people. And I like the people over at Netflix. You know, they make me feel good. They support my art. So 
no, I, I wouldn't want somebody showing up at somebody's office. I wouldn't want any of that. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. Especially when I can, and and also, I do feel like, uh, you know, I I am working on something that is political and that will be a little bit more international in its in its. But I do feel like that also needs a new format. Yeah. You know, discourse around political comedy can no longer be done with polish. Yeah. Does that make sense? Or, yeah. or, or with gloss? You have to take the gloves off now. Yeah. Um, and so I think even that needs a revamp. You know? Yeah, because we're so used to the, at least here, we have a, such an image of what political comedy looks like that if you see someone doing it here, you're like, oh, yeah, they're doing the thing and they have the graphic over their shoulder. And then you just yeah. you can easily not listen to it, or if you can get information for it, if you like it. But for the most part, it's not um, how it's not like really engaging into the system because we're so used to it. But but I also think you know it, sometimes what I feel about America is is you're not you don't talk about broad issues because you have so many audiences within an issue, mm-hmm. and and I feel like sometimes your comedians get that streamlined into those audiences, you know. So you have woke comics talking to woke people and you have alpha comics talking to alpha people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, but I, I, sometimes I feel like the really audacious thing is to take on the whole thing. Yeah. Um, in, in the freedom of speech uh, installment, you say something really interesting, which is you said, I don't draw the line. The audience does. I figured that out a while ago. I'm not in charge of the line. They are. What, what do you yeah. mean by that? And how does that relate here? The, it's, it's just, uh, you know, accounting for the fact that it's entirely possible and probable that I'm a dumbass, you know, like that, that's the, <laughs> you know, that's sure. the, the thing. Like, I don't know what you're going to think about this. There's 1.3 billion of us. You're expecting me to predict what you're going to like and not like. Um, you'll tell me. Mm-hmm. And if I messed up, I'll write something else. And hopefully you like that. But there's no way I'm going to know for sure. Um, and, and maybe that's just how I rationalize me not self-censoring. Yeah. You know, because if I was to self-censor, what would I censor? I have no clue. Anything could could trigger yeah. anything at this point. So you might as well not do it. But what I always tell people is I'll always make sure I take on myself as much as I take on you, mm-hmm. you know. And there's nothing that a government could do to me or, you know, etc. that is worse than silence from an audience because mm-hmm. you told a bad joke. Or because it didn't work. That's that is the worst feeling in the world, right? Yeah. So they'll let you know. An audience will slap you around pretty quick. The uh, the third installment is about the West, and I you know I've interviewed you know many non-American comedians yeah. about, and I feel like by the nature, because people always ask them, I have a sense of what they want out of a career in the West, and I really don't know with you. I mean, like like obviously you feel committed, sort of what you're doing in India and your your place there and working there, but you know, you've done stuff here, you work with Netflix, you just did the Judd Apatow movie. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what does it represent? What do you hope from it? How does it sort of fit into what you're trying to do generally with your art? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be honest. You know, the, the, it, it's just, I do know this. Uh, I, I do know that there are enough, that whether you're from the West or whether you're from India or anywhere, I have to bring you something that you didn't know in a show and I have to tell you a story that you haven't heard and the only way I know how to do that is to be authentic you know I, I think you've heard the you know my parents came to New York with one suitcase full of dreams 
and and now here I am story mm-hmm. from New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and London and every city in the world um but I think you haven't heard the no we came in with check-in luggage uh and, and there's certain parts in New York we like but we don't want to live in certain parts in New York you know uh, I think that too is is a new take on the west yeah. if that makes sense that the west appreciates too and i don't think there are uh i don't think there is american american programming and indian indian programming in mm-hmm. more people watch the avengers in india than they do in america yeah you know there are only global successes now in my opinion the the other thing it relates to you know you'll often talk about you're growing um the nature of how you grew up you you being you know raised in africa but going to school in india and you know going to school then in america the, the having an outsider's perspective um is very important to sort of how you approach your career how does it benefit what you're doing what do you think it offers how do you think it shapes what your perspective is well i mean the, my whole life has been kind of looking for common ground with people who instantly identified me as different hmm. you know uh, so in bollywood i'm the guy from the west and in in west i'm the guy from bollywood right <laughs> and that's my life right now and then i make music and i play music festivals or at least played music festivals where lots of musicians are pissed off because they're like why is this bollywood and comedy guy on on stage right so it's literally not belonging anywhere but trying to work everywhere um and so to do that you have to find common ground instantly yeah and um you posted uh, a Q&A that you did after the freedom of speech installment um yeah. and you said something i found really interesting which is your goal as a comedian right now is to write jokes that outlive this version of india can yeah. you talk about that well i feel like you know this version of india is much like a very recent version of america uh is much like a very recent version of england as well where there are things that we're proud of and there are things that we're not proud of right so we may be economically proud and we may be mm-hmm. infrastructurally proud but we're not proud of certain liberties we're not proud of you know uh i'd love to get to the point where the religious joke is passe and hopefully my religious joke holds up even then that's the dream you know mm-hmm. uh, to, to create that kind of material so that's that's just it you know yeah. like it, it's just me thinking about being 13 14 years into comedy and thinking okay how do i now start creating material that that people will remember um on the off chance that i have 20 more years to do this or three because i don't yeah. know at this point you know well that's the thing that's interesting is that it it somewhat implies you fear or worry that you won't be there to tell the jokes of the next in the next version of india for whatever reason i don't know i i honestly don't know you know it, it's hard to predict i i have to acknowledge that i've been super fortunate to be an indian mm. comic it's easier to be an indian comic than it is to be an american comic you know there are larger audiences we have more english speakers than america yeah. we're the largest smartphone content watching market in the world right now you know uh, american comics will get 2 3 million views on a uh, on an english video and and be happy with that there are hindi comics 2 years in putting out hindi videos catching 30 million views like just yeah. 2 million views is nothing yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know absolutely nothing but also we're a market where 30 million views online doesn't mean you sell tickets 
mm-hmm. when you show up in the city it might just be 30 million views online so we're very fortunate to be here in india in this kind of digital now moment uh but it changes very rapidly you know the the thing that is it's hard for comedy to last generally like you know things do bits maybe do that's still relevant but there's there's something that's so of the moment in comedy it be it the the time you're doing the joke the first time with the first audience whatever to just you know you're responding to a moment and this these sets clearly are responding to a moment what is it how do you sort of balance your desire to create something that lasts and create something that also is very current I just think it has to scare me. You know, the idea yeah. of doing it has to scare me. And and I don't mean actual fear. I mean just creatively it has to scare me. I I have to fear whether I'm able to pull it off or not. You know? Mm. Um I I've I've done enough shows about myself and my story and and I can tell you funny stories about my life and my wife and you know and I will probably very soon. Yeah. And and I can tell you stories about my pain and struggle you know all of that which comics do you know intersperse in their specials as well but but none of that feels very challenging right now in, yeah. in this pandemic and you know the real question was also you know you, you're losing all this money doing these shows you are climbing up this hill uh you're gonna get in trouble for stuff that you want to say uh you're risking covid you're trying to restart this scene and you have 10 minutes do you really want to talk about the breakfast you had or you mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know the fight you had or the funny thing that happened at the yeah, restaurant yeah. or do you want to make it worth it yeah the 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 sort of flip side on that is then you know why com you know like why do it and why be funny at all the, like the thing that you know Dave Chappelle i think is like post 20, the 2020 election said something like i can't even tell the tr- i can't even tell you something true unless it has a punchline behind it like why comedy what what do you think it offers do you ever think oh i wish i didn't even have to do the joke part i could just sort of speak directly well i look I, i'm a big chapel fan and and he's a, a a big influence in in how i feel about art but i also am a fan of what he does in that i think he writes the punchline first so i'm mm-hmm. assuming the intention is to be funny first and i think that that it definitely has to but as you get older maybe you don't get funnier maybe you don't get better but more of you falls onto the page right if nothing else happens that happens you access yourself a lot easier and so i go in trying to write jokes but i live in a politically charged atmosphere in a pandemic where these things are happening around me they're gonna fall onto the page uh so there's no conscious decision to to give you a message there's no conscious decision to to put an agenda down your throat but god damn it this is the stuff that i feel about and and, and even when i'm at the restaurant with my wife chances are this is the stuff that we're both talking about and thinking about so yeah it has to be on the page the your first special the first netflix special at least you know the the theme was sort of understanding and you a similar thing to the Chappelle thing. It's like, you know, I, I sandwiched, I told you everything I want to tell you. I sandwiched between sarcasm, stupidity, and I hope, you know, you would understand. Do you feel, you know, as you're doing this 14 years that you're getting closer to that understanding? Do you feel like that is like what is happening? That like the connection to the audience and the, how much of yourself that they're getting is, is closer or better understood or, or not. What do you think is, 
I'm I'm not analyzing it that much. You know, yeah. the thing is for me I, I'm effectively trying to do the opposite of what I just did at all times and that's kind of been the uh, the career mode um so far, you know, which is here's something I was just good at. Now let's go in the complete opposite direction from that. You know, so uh, I'm here on 10 on 10 doing like these these wordy monologues. The next project I'm doing I don't talk in the entire mm-hmm. project. It's an entirely sort of physical Chaplin-esque Mr. Bean type of a thing. Um, so to literally, uh, yeah, maybe it's just severe imposter syndrome. You know, <laughs> like that's what that's what my wife thinks it is. She's just like, would you just enjoy something for once and claim that you were good at it? And I'm like, no. What if that's not my thing? Like, yeah. what if I got lucky with that? Let me try the complete opposite. So, in terms of this being my shtick or this being my thing, or I feel like I know how to do it right now, not a damn thing, honestly. That that is funny that you put it that way because I do think you know in interviews you'll often talk about like when I'm 20 years in, that's like when comedians get good. And I do feel like there's part of you that like 20 years in, then I'll settle on whatever it is. But it also feels like part of what your thing is is never settling on whatever the thing you just did is. I think so. Yeah, I I I yeah. honestly don't know, but like I said I'm not thinking about it that yeah. much. And at least this year the decision was I'm not going to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, at least for this year I was just like let me just do everything I enjoy and everything that scares me and we'll see what happens. We'll see if I I find myself in a better artistic space at the end of it or not. Um the other thing I want to ask you and I I think I know the answer, but the the But besides the John Oliver thing, the other thing is I think people ask you to run for some sort of office or to run for um and you joke that you won't but um <laughs> no talk about one why do you think people are asking that's the first why do why would they even think that and why you shouldn't be the person A it's depressing that they're asking I'll be honest like like that, that's not you know uh, a a testament to to who I am it's a testament to who's in office mm-hmm. if you're expecting comedians to run for and B no I, I don't know a damn thing I'm a moron you know so uh, you know it's maybe it's cuz you you tell the truth in some of your videos but how screwed are we we're just not lying is the bar You yeah. know like that cannot be the bar it's got to be better than that you have to have like a degree in something useful you have to understand global policy something um but no i i think that's just enthusiastic fans <laughs> so now it's time for our the our final segment which is called the laughing round it's like a lightning round but because this is a comedy show i call it the laughing round Okay. Do you have a favorite joke joke? Like a street joke, a dad joke, just a jokey joke joke? Yeah, it's a uh, knock knock. Who's there? Dad. Dad who? In Bastard, which is my favorite. It's just a a technical <laughs> knock knock joke and that's why Got I like it. it. So, yeah. Um is there a a joke from another comedian that you wish you could steal not so that you'd be caught for stealing but it's another dimension where everything's the same but you got this joke that you saw a comedian do that you'd be like oh if i i wish i had that i wish i got that first yeah so many i mean john mulaney horse in the hospital i thought was the greatest trumpet is really really well very well done um then 
I think uh, what did I see recently that I had, like uh, Hannah Gatsby's second special, um, mm. just in terms of um, structure, you know, where to, to be full disclosure about everything that's going to happen in the special and then to actually do it, like to spoil the surprise up top. Yeah. I thought it was a fantastic way to do it. Um, Chappelle's final punchline callback, you know, which he does. Uh, I think it's not Sticks and Stones, but the one before that. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, where he writes the punchline first and then, and then the whole special is about the punchline. And then, and then um, Tig Nataro had a special, like a happy special, which I thought was really nice. And she ended it with like a band coming out, which was just a really yeah, yeah, yeah. ridiculous joke that she just kept going and kept going. And I was like, that's that took some balls, you know, well done. Yeah, I mean, I saw that first in person. I was like, this is the most amazing. It's To be in that audience when she did it yeah. one time I was like, this is del- <laughs> I'm delirious. I have no idea what's real anymore. Um <laughs> Do you have a story about an experience with a legendary comedian uh, living or dead? A short story. Um. Uh, yes, but I'm not going to name drop. But sure, uh, that's fine. It, it was just uh, the first time I was at the Improv in LA, uh, and I'd sold it out, and it was the first time that they gave me like a, a my own show. And this was my second trip to the States because the last time I was doing, you know, five minutes or 15 minutes or whatever. And then they were like, oh, he can actually sell tickets because he's this Indian guy. And, you know, they'll show Mm -hmm. up. So they gave me like an hour. (laughs) And so the entire improv is like full of like just Indians. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a comedian who I love who's upstairs in the green room and his show is uh, is after mine. And I just come up to get my shit. And he just kind of looks at me and he's like, hey, man who the fuck are you? Right? <laughs> and I'm like, why? He's like, I've been here 25 years. I've never seen this many brown people in the improv. So, so tell me about yourself. And we had a nice conversation. So that was kind of nice because he's one of my heroes. Um, well, I'll try to guess who it is. Um, can you name uh, three uh, Indian comedians that you'd recommend, recommend me talking to, recommend people check out? Yeah, um, Dr. Zakir Khan, I think he's the number one Hindi comic. So he's really, really good. I would talk to um, Aditi Mittal, who I think is uh, just our top comedian, female comic, or whatever the mm-hmm. official word is in the West. But I think just a beast on stage. Very, very good. Uh, and then I would talk to Amit Tandon. Is, uh, he's a Hindi comic as well, but he's kind of like our observational guy you know mm-hmm. like our family guy so uh, wherever brian regan falls you know uh, I, I, <laughs> I think he's that guy so very interesting in that cool. sense in the this will be last one in the um outside in special you ask everyone what's the first thing you'll do when the world reopens so as the world when the world really fully reopens since like you've done some of the things i imagined as there's been some periods of reopening but when fully reopening what is the first thing you would like to do? I will be going on a world tour that was postponed. I had a 36 country world tour uh, that, that was planned for, for 2020. And I hope to resume it because I was going to, yeah, I was just going to travel the world, like really see the world this time. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's it. Thank you so much. This has been great. <laughs> All right. Cool. This was fun. 
That's it for another episode of Good One. You can stream 10 on 10 on Veer Dawes' YouTube channel. He also has four specials on Netflix. Follow him on Twitter at TheVeerDawes and on Instagram at VerDawes. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Godwin Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.